Good morning, everybody. Steve's my name, and uh, I'm one of the ministers here. I'm going to uh, take us through Psalm 69 uh, this morning. It's great that you've joined us for this Good Friday, and we're going to take some time to consider what really makes Good Friday so good as uh, we take a few minutes to look at God's Word. Recently, as you know, there's been uh, big floods all over our land, and particularly in the Lismore region. One particular story that's come out of that place over recent times is uh, about rising waters into one of the homes. The story was told on the radio as I listened to it just a few weeks ago uh, that as the water levels rose in this home, the family decided it would be best to climb up into the roof cavity or the attic, whatever it was, in their home. They didn't expect, however, that the water levels would rise ever faster. And before they knew it, there was, the water was starting to lap at the, at the top of the attic there. I don't know if you can picture the panic of what that would be like. The one door out is no longer available anymore. It itself is covered in water. There's no way out above you either. You are literally stuck as the water levels rise. This is the type of scene that you see in the movies, isn't it? As the water level rise, it rises in the thriller movie. And I wonder if you can picture the panic and anxiety of that family as they sit in that small space, dark, and the water is rising all the more. The panic, the anxiety setting in. What's going to happen? Higher and higher the water gets. We're out of our depth. There's nothing we can do. I wonder if you can feel what that must have been like for that family. That have been terrified. Now, thankfully, we do live in an era of mobile phones. This particular family were able to make some calls and though the phone system was in overdrive, they were able to get through to a few people and make sure that a boat was able to come to the roof of their home and their friends dug through the uh, the tiles of the house and got them out to safety. The anxiety leading to the rescue and salvation of these people are the types of themes and feelings that we get as we get to this psalm of Psalm 69 on this Good Friday. And as we read this song, this poem, this psalm that was written by King David a thousand years before Jesus came, we want to feel the emotion in this song, the emotion in this psalm. And we want to see how it connects with the message of Good Friday and how it connects with us 2,000 years further on. Again, So I'm going to pray, and if you've got a Bible there, please open it in front of you, Psalm 69, uh, and we'll have a look at this together. Please uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us in the Scriptures. We thank you for what you've told us about what uh, Jesus has done for us. And we pray that this morning, through this ancient psalm, you would help us to see clearly uh, what he has done so that we might uh, live for him and live in him. Uh, We ask, please, that you might uh, put aside all of the other competing demands of the weekend and allow us to hear your word clearly this day, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the man of Psalm 69 could be described as a man of sorrows. His name was David, King David. And we see that in verses 1 to 3 of the psalm that he pens, he has the same feelings of anxiety as that family did in Lismore just a few weeks ago. Look at verse 1 there. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with crying out. 
My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. You can hear the same sorts of response here, can't you? The waters have come up to my neck. My throat is dry from crying out for people to help me, for you, God, to help me. I'm out of my depth and the waters are rising. Now, of course, in the case of those families in Lismore, this was a real water coming up through their homes. Here, David is speaking in a metaphorical way about his life, that he's out of his depths and the waters of life are rising up above him. Why? Well, look at verse four. It tells us why. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. Here's the problem that David has. People are out to get him. More than the numbers of the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause, David says. People are out to get him. Why? Verse 9 tells us a little more. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. David says, the reason people hate me is because they hate you, God. I have zeal for you, God. I love you, God. I love your temple. And there are people that oppose you. There are people that hate me because I love you so much. I'm on about your cause, God, David says. And as a result, the people hate me all the more. Look at the second half of verse 11. I became a byword to them, the opponents. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. We might put it this way. I'm a victim of cancel culture. That's what he says. All these guys sitting around the gate, having their drinks at the end of the day, the drunkards going uh, crazy at the city gate are making songs about me. Because I love you so much, God. This is my problem. They hate me without cause and I'm crying out to you, Lord. Please help me, save me, deliver me from this situation. Answer me, show your face to me. Look at verse 20. Reproaches have broken my heart, David says, so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Down to verse 24, David says, so, Lord, pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. And then finally, in verse 28, look at these strong words that David says, let them, the enemies, be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. I wonder if you can hear the the prayer of the man of sorrows here, David, calling out in the midst of his anxiety, in the midst of his fear, pleading with God that he might save him, deliver him from his enemies, remove this sorrow far from him. Indeed, I wonder if you can relate to that. Relate to that feeling of anxiety and fear and wishing God would turn up and fix that problem for you. Is this a psalm that you can relate to? This man of sorrows, standing for God, 
passionately keen to follow and serve him only finds himself in grief and trouble as a result and he's crying out to God, please help me. Take away my sorrow. Relieve my grief. Not sure if you have a favourite musical artist or a favourite musical song for me one of my favorite bands released a new album yesterday I haven't, I haven't even listened to it yet but i know what type of music it is it's going to give me energy it's probably going to be my gym soundtrack it's the one i take with me to bump up my energy but it's not the only music i listen to all music carries emotion doesn't it it, it carries that emotion regardless of what type of music it is the fast and loud music that you want to scream in the car and that brings you energy Or there's the Saturday morning playlist that you might have on your device that relaxes you and gives you that feeling of a quiet Saturday morning at home. Or then there's the warm, gooey love songs that you listen to and you don't tell anyone that you do. We didn't pen any of these lyrics to these songs. But as we sing them in the car or in the shower or wherever it is that we sing these songs, the words of the artist become our words, don't they? The emotion of the song becomes our emotion. We feel what the artist is feeling. And so it is here in this song, this psalm, this poem. Now we're told at the very beginning of the psalm that it's according to lilies. That's the tune. You all know it, don't you? It's all right, I don't either. I'm not sure what the tune was, but for many years after the penning of this song, regardless of its tune, many people used it over the years, taking its words as their own. Not only was it the song of King David, but it was also the song that the exiles of Israel would have sung, ready for God to resolve their problem and bring them back to their own promised land. And some 3,000 years later, we are able to resonate with this song as well. Now, there's good times and great classic hits for you, isn't it? This resonates with us. As people ask, where is God? What is he doing in this world? We see it clearly in this passage. We feel its emotion. And for the New Testament writers, they see this song as more than just emotion but as prophecy they see it as a biographical psalm speaking of someone else the new testament writers recognize that what we see here in psalm 69 is david not only talking about himself but prophetically talking about another someone else in the future that he was not sure about that he did not know about indeed psalm 69 brings us to good friday It is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. The psalm of the man of sorrows, who is not just King David, but Jesus Christ himself. The Apostle John especially understood Psalm 69 as a reference to Jesus. The first time we see John refer to Psalm 69 is in the second chapter of his gospel, in John chapter 2. As Jesus begins his ministry... Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses the temple, turning the, uh, as people had turned the, the temple from a place of worship into a rip-off shopping centre. 
And so Jesus in John chapter 2 clears the temple and we see these words. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Here, all of the disciples, and John writes it down, uh, recognize that Jesus himself is the embodiment of Psalm 69. The man of sorrows who had a zeal for God, who was living for God in every possible way. We know this to be true, don't we? That Jesus was perfect and without sin. He lived for God in every way. He was perfect. His zeal for God was perfect. And the disciples here in John chapter 2 realized that Jesus was the ultimate man of sorrows. He was the one that had the greatest zeal for God and his house. They see Psalm 69 verse 9 as being about Jesus directly. Well, the Apostle John goes on later in his gospel to describe uh, what will happen as he leaves this world. And he teaches his disciples about what life will look like for them once he has left. And he says to them, when I leave, be under no illusions, the world will hate you, disciples. And they will hate you because no servant is greater than his master. If they hated me, Jesus says, they will hate you also. And he goes on to say this. Look at John chapter 15. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the, words, the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now that they have seen and hated both me and my father, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Here Jesus quotes Psalm 69 verse 4. A reminder that they hated him without cause. The man of sorrows who had a zeal for God in his house was hated without cause and so it was. We know famously, don't we, that the Good Friday narrative reminds us that the the governor, Pilate, washed his hands of Jesus' death saying he was innocent, he did no wrong. Look at John chapter 18 and what this has to say uh, about this situation. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in Jesus, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. The people did hate Jesus without cause. Pilate himself says he did nothing wrong. He always obeyed God. He always had a zeal for God and the people hated him without cause. Jesus is the man of sorrows of Psalm 69. But there's more. Later on in John's gospel, he recognizes something more about Psalm 69 and the connection to Jesus. John understands that when Jesus dies on the cross, he is the fulfillment of the man of sorrows of Psalm 69. Kylie read it for us in our second reading this morning. And here it is again in verse 28. Look at what Jesus said there in verse 28 of John chapter 19. I thirst. I thirst. Not hard to understand why he might thirst, is it? 
None of us have ever had that experience of hanging on a cross. But I can't imagine it was very pleasant. Hanging there for hours after having been whipped and battered and bruised. You then had to hold the weight of your whole body up on the nails that were planted into your hands and your feet. You'd be out of breath and I too would be thirsty, wouldn't you? I'd be thirsty. We all know thirst, don't we? Just on a a hot day, we're thirsty. Or we've done some hard work, we're thirsty. Or when we've played sport or done some exercise, we're thirsty. And if you're on the cross in the Middle East, in the middle of the day, you'd be thirsty as well. But by itself, it seems like, well, that's not a particularly remarkable detail, is it? I thirst. Of course you would thirst. Who wouldn't thirst? But look again at verse 28. Verse 28 says that Jesus said, I thirst to fulfill the scripture. Jesus had Psalm 69 in mind. Jesus was, if you like, out of his depth, tired with grief and sorrow at this point. Weary. Crying, to use the words of Psalm 69, verses 1 to 3, his throat was parched. And so, as a result, to fulfill the scripture, he says, I thirst. And look at what happens. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You might remember from Psalm 69, verse 21, David speaks about the enemies of the man of sorrows giving poison to drink, sour wine to drink. And here Jesus sees himself as the fulfillment of this. To fulfill the scripture says, I thirst, and he is immediately given sour wine to drink. One final allusion in Psalm 69 is in the book of Acts. Luke, as he writes the book of Acts, sees the opponents, especially in the person of Judas himself, leading him to see Psalm 69 verse uh, 25 as a connection to Acts chapter 1 verse 20. Look at what it says on the screen. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. This ancient song, A thousand years or so before the coming of Jesus, prophesies about the man of sorrows and what he will do. It tells us that the man of sorrows was Jesus. Well, that's great. We've got one document from 2,000 years ago telling us that it agrees with a document from 3,000 years ago. That's great, but what about us? What does all of this Good Friday man of sorrows stuff mean for us well as we finish up this morning there are five helpful reminders of what it means for us this first uh, this good friday first of all we are first the enemies of the man of sorrows i mentioned earlier that you might resonate with that psalm psalm 69 where are you god why don't you come to help me you might resonate with that but The first place of resonance for us as we come to Psalm 69 is to see ourselves not as the one crying out for help, 
but as the one who is the enemy of the man of sorrows. In other words, we're not to see ourselves at the center of the picture as the victim, but as the enemy of God. This is the story of Good Friday. You see, if we had have been standing there on that very first Good Friday, we too would have been calling for the blood of Jesus. How do I know that? Well, the Bible describes this for us as the heart of sin, the heart of rebellion against God. When God is brought into our life and into our world, our natural tendency is to push him away and eventually kill him, to get rid of him, to move him to the sidelines. And Good Friday is the story not of many victims and a few enemies, but the story of one victim who died on a cross For all of the sins of his enemies. That's us. We are the enemies of Psalm 69 first. We are the ones who mock and persecute and hate God. Who want to push him out of our lives. We are not victims but enemies of God. And Good Friday means nothing. If we are not first struck by the need we have. As the enemies of a holy and righteous God. And yet secondly. What makes Good Friday so good. Is that Jesus was not delivered from his enemies. He died. The enemies seemingly won. The enemies seemed to succeed. The enemies took Jesus and put him on the cross and he died. But Jesus was not delivered from his enemies precisely so that we could be delivered from the enemies of sin and death. See, the Bible teaches us very clearly that the reason human beings die is because they rebel against God. And yet death does not have to have the last word in our lives. Jesus was not delivered from his enemies. He did die on that cross that very first Good Friday so that we could be delivered from our enemies of sin and death. Death does not have to have the last word. Thirdly, Jesus, the man of sorrows, was punished and afflicted and hated so that we could be loved and saved and forgiven. I don't know about you, but when somebody speaks ill against a member of my family without cause, I get jealous. Do you do that? I get very jealous. It took all that I had not to get retribution on school friends when they do the wrong thing to my kids at school. I want to go down to school and fix it myself. I'm zealous when somebody speaks against my family. The psalmist speaks about the zeal that he has for God. Deal with those who speak against you, God. I wish you would deal with them. Pour out your indignation on them. Let your burning anger overtake them. And yet here we come to one of the great differences between uh, the man of sorrows in Psalm 69 and Jesus. You see, Jesus did not cry out for them to be punished or disrespected, but instead to die on the cross to save them. They were not to be punished and afflicted and hated, but 
to be loved and saved and forgiven. This is the grace of God on Good Friday. We, as the enemies of God, can be forgiven and set free and loved and saved. Indeed, Psalm 69 verse 28 says, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. And so fourthly, we see the psalmist wished that these enemies would be blotted out of the book of life. But instead, Jesus dies in order that our name might be written in the book of life. This is the gift that he gives to us in his death on the cross. That he might give us new, eternal life. Our name's written in the book of the living as the book of Revelation makes so clear. And all of this leads, thirdly, to the joy of salvation. Verses 30 to 36 speak of this in, uh, in amazing terms. Verse 30, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Uh, uh, verse, uh, verse 34, let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. The result of this salvation that God will bring, the anticipated response is praise. Which, of course, is why we gather year on year, day out, uh, week on week, to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. It's why we gather today. Because the man of sorrows has come. The man of sorrows has delivered us, his enemies, from our own enemies. Giving us the gift of grace that we might be written in his book of life if we just simply trust him. That's what makes it good. And so where do you sit today with Jesus Christ? We are all his enemies. And what makes Good Friday good is that he came to turn that on its head, that we might be his friends, that we might live with him, that we might be written in his book of life. Is today the day that you come and put your trust in the Lord Jesus for the first time? Is today the day you come and put your trust in the Lord Jesus again? Because this man of sorrows has come. As predicted, died on a cross and he did so for you. What does he ask of us? Nothing more than we trust him, have faith in him, give our lives over to him so that we might be called his children. That's what makes Good Friday good news. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm that speaks to us of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross that very first Good Friday. We ask, please, that you might help us to respond by putting our trust in him and uh, as a result, responding with praise and thanksgiving on this day of, of significant joy. For in the death of Jesus, we have the enemies of sin and death defeated. And we turn from being your enemies to to being your friends. And so we ask, please, that today uh, you might remind us, you might challenge us, and that you might allow us, please, uh, to live our lives in the light of what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, we're going to take some time to sing a song of the same title this morning. So uh, as uh, the band comes forward, would you stand where you are? We're going to sing together, man.